Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm Ollie Henderson and this is episode two of this new podcast in which I talk to leading thinkers about subjects related to the future of work and our place in it. My guest today is Kath Bishop. She's an Olympian, a world championship gold medalist in rowing, a diplomat, an author and a thoroughly lovely person to chat to. Her new book, The Long Wind, came out in early October. I enjoyed it and enjoyed the conversation, which covered a range of topics, including sport, leadership and education. It included fascinating and important points around our culture of winning and how we should aspire to judge success in the workplace and with our kids. We had a great chat. I think you'll find it really useful and interesting, and I'll include links to everything we reference in the show notes. Before we start, I just wanted to point you in the direction of my newsletter, Future Work Life. You can subscribe on Substack or on futureworklife.com. Right, so to the show, enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Kath. It's a pleasure to have you here today. I've read your new book, The Long Win. I loved it. There's loads to unpack, but I thought the easiest place was for you perhaps to explain why you decided to write it in the first place. Yeah, so, I mean, the, book, the book's been quite a journey, as I think often writing books is. It started off as a very personal way of making sense of my own experiences of a really ferociously intense culture in high-performance sports. I was an Olympic rower for 10 years and, um, you know, got some results, but, you know, lost more races than I won. Uh, finished my third Olympics with a silver medal and sort of walked away wondering, um, you know, how do I make sense of that? Did I do okay? How do I even start to, to answer that question? What, what is success about? And I thought it was a very personal question. And for a while, that question rumbled on inside my own head. But then I kind of realized that actually this topic of winning and what success looks like wasn't going away, even when I went into different worlds. So whether that was working as a diplomat or becoming a parent or you know, working now with businesses and organizations, developing leaders and, and um, effective teams. The theme of winning has never gone away. So I realized this isn't just my own question in my own head. It's, it's all of our dilemma about actually what, what is success about? What are the things that really matter to us? What do we value? And do we go chasing things that then somehow aren't what we expect when we reach them or leave us devastated if we don't? You know, what's this game that we get caught into? So it's really making sense of my own story, personally, professionally, and then starting to see around me that actually there are, there are a lot of similar stories in sport, in business, in education and politics. And then trying to get to the bottom of this ingrained um, sort of addiction, if you like, to, to winning, to being number one and actually asking, is it helping us to be at our best? And do you think it's something that's got worse over time? So I think it's slowly got more and more entrenched. Uh, in, in part of the book, I kind of look back and, and sort of try to understand how it's become so entrenched. And of course, if you look in the history books, we have a very sim- simple narrative of, um, you know, battles and heroes and who wins and who loses. And it, it's all wonderfully simple. I think the danger is we've sort of taken that simple, you know, it's brilliant if you win, you're the strong, mighty, powerful one. And if you lose, you're the weak Um, weak one that should sort of creep away into the shadows we've taken that into other fields we've taken that into business we've taken it into sport we've taken it into politics the challenge is that might have worked up to a point a century or two ago but the complex issues that we now face in our lives mean that it leaves us wholly ill-equipped to to meet those 
because that language is a very finite language. It's where it's, you know, where, where winning and losing is easy to determine. But life isn't like that anymore. How do you win or lose at climate change? How do you win or lose at global inequality? How do you win or lose, you know, in international security? Wars these days aren't fought like they were 200 years ago when it was battles, battle brigades lining up on a field and, and one dominated the other and then it was over. Now our wars go on forever. I mean, terrorism never stops. Cyber wars, you know, are going on all the time in the background. And this language of winning and losing is not enabling us to develop the ways of thinking, behaving, connecting with each other that we need in order to manage these issues much more effectively. So, as you mentioned, outside of your sporting career, you worked in diplomacy, including in war zones like Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm interested in how that side of your life has contributed towards your thinking in the book. In my mind, a key principle of diplomacy is avoiding zero-sum outcomes, by which I mean that winning means inherently that one party prevails over another. Where does the world of diplomacy intersect with sport? and indeed other areas of life, like education and business. I think uh, it was an experience of negotiating as a diplomat that really started to develop some different aspects to what I call the long win and the long win way of thinking. Um, because although we used to um, have reams and reams of historical and political briefings to learn about the technical subject matter, what I realised was most critical to the negotiation was the human dynamic in the room when you get in there and the mindsets in the room. What do people think success is when they enter the room? Because that's going to determine where you get, however brilliant your proposal might be to solve peace in the Middle East or any of these you know, numerous, numerous intractable disputes that exist around the world. The most critical thing that, that stops you from moving them to a, to a kind of more stable place is a zero-sum game thinking mindset where I can only win if my opposition loses. If people come into the negotiating room with that mentality and you can't shift that mentality, basically you don't get anywhere. You don't get anything that's sustainable that's moving the situation on. So a lot of our work, although it looked as if it was sort of about knowing your politics and history and culture and, and, and that detail, it was actually psychological. It was about how do we shift people's mindsets so that they can see that they will win in a much greater way. The benefits to them will be much greater if they can see things in a cooperative, collaborative way so that, you know, essentially no one wins unless everyone wins. And that's the shift we were trying to make. So again, this concept of how we define success is it binary? Is it involve somebody else losing? Is that essential to you being successful? That has a big impact on then the way we behave, the way we approach the difficult issues and where we get to. Or are we able to think about how we can all be part of a bigger, better solution? I was really struck by some of the anecdotes you told about working within business, where people bring you in and say, look, I just want you to help us win. And your question often was, well, what does that mean? What is winning? And, and I think that's a really interesting question because it is something that's thrown around a lot in, in uh, conversations I have within business. But I think often it's very difficult to determine what the winning looks like. What's your experience of those situations and how should we approach it? What type of um, you know, metrics should we be using to determine success? I think this is a great question. It sits at the heart of the book and it's a question that I think we shouldn't just try and answer and move on. It's a question we should constantly be reviewing. 
what does success look like when the circumstances around us and the context changes does our view of success change what is determining that what are we actually working towards what really matters and interestingly 2020 has has really forced us to reevaluate that in some ways because our traditional measures of success have been moved away have been wiped away so if you're an olympic athlete you wanted to win an olympic medal that isn't possible many businesses will have had targets and profit margins for 2020 that have been wiped out of the window does that mean that that company totally fails or actually is it able to achieve its purpose in a different way so that's when we get onto this deeper sense of what's the meaning behind winning why do you want to win why does it matter to you to win why do you deserve to win what will you do with the responsibility that comes with winning so i think the trouble is the metrics leave us short of that deeper meaning of what winning means we love a metric it's easy to measure and all of our systems are geared up for that but in actual fact, where we see a lot of people who are the winners, whether it's in sport or in business, actually get to that point and then feel quite empty, feel quite unfulfilled, wonder, you know, what was it all for? Have that kind of terrible, empty feeling of hollowness and an anti-climax. So for me, that's, that was the real big kind of moment of, you know, winning isn't working. Because if it's not even working for the ones who are winning, we're discarding everyone else along the way, then something's going wrong. We're discarding talent, we're discarding you know, the, the bigger impact that we could have in what we do. So when I go into companies and they will often look at my background and say, you know, great, you know, you've got this Olympic background, you're gonna understand us, we, we wanna be the best, we wanna be number one, we wanna smash our competitors. And all of this language comes out. Um, and then I start to ask a bit about, yeah, what, what will you do with the responsibility of being number one in your sector or in your industry? Um, why should you be? Um, why is it important to you? Why does it matter to your staff to be number one? And if there aren't good answers there, then that usually explains why they also tell me in the next sentence that they've got really low staff engagement figures and, you know, that they feel that their, their um, employees and their teams aren't working to their full potential. Because actually we need to tap into a deeper sense of motivation that we have through understanding the values of what we're doing, the meaning of what we're doing, the purpose of what we're doing. Now that isn't easily put in a spreadsheet. But that doesn't mean it isn't 10 times or 100 times more valuable than what we do put in the spreadsheet. So we need to start asking some different questions. So you use a very neat framework to explain how we should reframe our understanding of what success means. It focuses on what you call the three C's, which are clarity and more specifically clarity of purpose, constant learning and connection with others. Now I saw parallels in this with Daniel Pink's work in his book Drive in particular. And the thesis here is that Extrinsic motivation through mechanics like salary increases or promotions can only ever contribute so much. In fact, it's intrinsic motivation that's key. And to achieve that, you need to empower people to discover a sense of purpose, achieve mastery of a subject and give them the autonomy to make their mark. So in your experience, are these elements missing within those businesses that suffer from high staff turnover? I think it's lacking in business, I think it's lacking in sport, and I think it's lacking in education. And I think in all of those worlds, it holds us back from actually achieving far more. So my, my thesis is not to lower standards, it's not to attack competition, it's to attack competition where it's done in a way that holds us back, that stops us from exploring uh, more effective ways of raising our performance and playing to the deeper intrinsic motivation that you mentioned. So I absolutely agree with Daniel Pink's approach that we should we overplay extrinsic motivation. So we overplay those external rewards 
both in business, in education and in sports. So it's all about the medals or it's all about the A-star grades you get at school or it's all about hitting your targets and getting your bonus in work. And that's a very limited way of motivating us. It plays to the short-term part of our brains where we get a little dopamine hit because we've got our A grade or we've got that short-term metric hit. And that leaves us wanting to do it again. So in actual fact, it doesn't, we don't get much satisfaction. We just think, oh, I want that again. You know, like an addict starts to be, crave the next hit. That's the system in our brain that we're playing to that's short term, it never ends, and it leads to diminishing returns. So that's quite a sort of limiting psychological approach to be using. We have a different part of our brains that is actually fueled by meaning and purpose that is much more sustainable, much deeper, and enables us in the process of tapping into that motivation to be much more creative, resilient, innovative, all of the things that we need within an organization. When we're working to these short-term metrics, we end up just doing the things we did before a little bit faster. The same thing over and over again. We're not in a mindset where we're able to think, what am I actually trying to achieve in the big picture? And how might I now be able to achieve that in a different way? Because I can see that we've got different information or different technology or different capacities. So you're always having that kind of more meaningful conversation about what we're able to do. So one of the things that has helped companies to adapt in 2020 is the ones that understood that bigger impact that they could have within society, within communities, within the economy, were able to adapt in order to achieve that end uh, sort of purpose. The ones who were just chasing the quarterly figures, when they were wiped away and the normal way of working was wiped away, they found it incredibly difficult to understand how to shift. I mean, things just literally fell apart. So it gives us, you know, now in, in this unpredictable world, also a much more effective um, and sustainable basis on which to do our jobs, in which to adapt constantly as we really need to do. I'd suggest the worst manifestation of all those bad things is what's known as employee monitoring. I'm not sure how much you'll have read or seen about this, but it concerns me for a number of reasons. The first main reason is privacy. We've having to adapt in many cases to a new way of working. We're no longer able to move freely and work at our organization's office and instead doing our best to carry on as usual from somewhere within our own home. Now these tools attempt to determine how productive people are using misguided metrics like email sent, keystroke monitoring, and in the worst case, checking how long you're sat in front of your computer by taking regular photos of you via your webcam. So that is frankly just deeply weird. And in addition, in no case a useful measure of whether someone's doing the job well. The main problem I have though is trust. I struggle to understand in what world businesses feel that these sorts of Stasi-like tactics will bring out the best in people. So I'm interested in hearing your view on why they do it. Do you think it's fear? I find it really difficult to understand how anybody thinks that could be anything other than enormously performance limiting for all your people and short term and ensuring that nobody's going to want to work for your company, you know, if they can find work somewhere else. So I think it's a really effective way of destroying morale. And I can't see why anyone would want to do that. Um, it, it, it can only be driven from that place of fear that you talk about. 
Um, and again, that short term sort of I've got to do this because of something, you know, that drives us to just react, if you like, without thinking about the deeper consequences. That's the place we get to if we're driven by fear. That's not an effective place to be. We, again, we want to get into this um, much more collaborative mindset where we're able to trust others and move forward. That, you know, again, it's interesting that research study after research study shows how critical trust is to an effective culture it sits at the heart of being able to collaborate being able to be creative being able to perform being able to bring your own ideas the best of who you are to what you do you know again to, to be inclusive all of these things that that i think you know we want to have in our companies require trust and yet trust is dropping so there's a massive mismatch and an understanding of what's required to build trust and certainly that's you know the longer game once you've broken trust it takes you know an enormously longer amount of time to build it back again so you're also hurting yourself sort of um both you know, making a, a trying to get a short-term gain maybe for a long-term loss um, and that's madness. I think that's the other factor at play here is this short term versus long term. We get sucked into thinking this is going to help me next month without realizing I'm going to be absolutely destroyed in terms of morale, motivation, performance in six months time, three years time. So, you know, it, yeah, it comes from a place of fear. That's never good. It comes from a place of short term thinking. And it comes from a sort of, a, frankly, a kind of really dubious moral standpoint as well about how you're treating people. I think it's fine to monitor machines, but, you know, in effect, what you're going to get is a machine-like response. So, you know, you're maybe setting yourself up for, 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 for the world of AI, if you like. But what we're now not doing is, is actually maximizing what we bring as humans to the jobs that we do. The ideas, that social connection, um, you know, the, the kind of collaboration, the community that we can create within a company. That's where we get the difference between good and great. That's where we get the difference that enables us to adapt, to do things differently, and for people to take their own initiative to make stuff happen as only they can see in their own sort of frontline positions or, or wherever they might be. So I think it's hugely limiting. I think it's madness. And I, I, I think it comes from a mindset that's deeply troubled if you think that's the answer. Agreed. So you mentioned AI there. It's a pretty useful segue into a conversation that I'm having with all the guests on this program about the future of work. I'm interested in it, particularly in the perspective of how that relates to our personal lives. Now, what I'd be really keen to talk about is education. So if we take a step back, the determinant of our preparedness for the future of work is in many ways defined by the education that we receive. And the book isn't just about business, it covers a range of subjects. And education is something I'm particularly interested in. I've got three young children. I recognise that there isn't a perfect way to educate children. It's very difficult to keep them motivated. It's probably difficult to judge relative success and if you don't have that how do you measure whether schools are doing a good job i'm also though interested in this fundamental reassessment of the way that we teach and i think this you could go back to, to ken robinson's famous ted talk where he mentions the fact that we are necessarily preparing our kids for the future in the right way what's your general take on education the way that we measure progress within children and maybe some practical advice about how I, as a parent of young kids, should approach the, the practicality of motivating my children and also something I'm interested in, which is building resilience within them. And do, do they sit hand in hand? 
Mm, interesting, rich questions. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to immediately come and challenge you back on this. You know, it's difficult to keep them motivated. I mean, where's that assumption come from? Um, have you watched a sort of child exploring, you know, in the woods or, or you know, many environments or given a new um, model or um, sort of something to, to play around with? Um, where it's difficult to keep motivated is because we've stopped enabling them to have the autonomy if you like to explore things and to just be learning for the sake of learning they feel frightened that they might do something wrong because they've got into this world of things can be right and wrong so where we've got a challenge of it might be difficult to motivate them that's completely of our own making because I think there's one thing that a child has is a wonderful imagination and, and a huge curiosity in life and it's a really sad fact that probably quite a lot of our education starts to drain that out of them when actually we should be fueling that curiosity. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the, the research and effective work in education that's going on in some parts of America where they um, focus on cooperative learning. So much more of that sort of collaborative work in in the, in the classroom and again in um, the Nordic countries they really enable much more of that exploration in groups where you're given projects you're not sitting at a desk on your own answering questions getting them right or wrong um, you know multiple choice or sort of some forced awful reading comprehension um, you know you're just enabling children to explore at their own rate you're also not forcing them to hit certain points at certain part you know at certain ages because we all develop at a different rate so I think, you know, I think we're quite Victorian, sadly, in our education. I've also got two young children at a primary school and I'm, I'm quite saddened by what I see as lots of things, teaching them quite limiting behaviours, not to explore, not to come up with good ideas. You get points for being quiet, for standing in a line straight um, and answering all your questions correctly. Uh, and, and actually, that's a real challenge for the future, because what I see at the opposite end in, um, in the world of work where we're developing leaders what they need now is an ability to create something that hasn't been done before because there's no right answer for how you lead a business in a pandemic there's no right answer for where many sectors are going to go in the next few decades so you need to be able to be able to to adapt to be creative to work with others to take different perspectives to have your own viewpoint challenged and to be growing that constantly so we come back to the need for much more autonomy and mastery in education and the fact that we simply are not geared up for that at the moment and we're creating people with bagfuls of a grades or a sense of failure if you don't have those and in fact um, but both of those situations are quite relevant to the needs of the workplace so again you know it might be nice to measure these a grades but that doesn't mean that you're equipped to deal with the leadership challenges of the modern workplace a practical question how do we measure success in education if we don't have grades so I think you can always measure progress and I think we need to think less about that end point if you like and to enable and to to kind of watch how um, children progress in different ways so again what you have in some of these more progressive education systems is you know the, the children are choosing aspects of history that they follow so then they're much more motivated and they delve into them in a deeper way and you're you're tracking that you know where, where's the curiosity going and you're enabling that and actually the world of um, technology makes it a lot easier for children to access different information that they're interested in. You don't just all learn from one book, 
and yet we're still doing that one book approach. So you think much more about the progress. What can I do next to help this child deepen their knowledge, broaden their knowledge? So you are, if you like, focusing much more on that learning journey than, oh, they've reached this point, or they've reached this point, because you're always doing that in a very narrow way that ignores something else that they've achieved. So our system at the moment completely ignores if you're good at collaborating, if you're good at being creative, if you're good at challenging the status quo and thinking of alternative ways of answering a question. No, you get no marks for that. You only get a mark if you learn the way that everybody's learned to do it, which again is really limiting. So although it's easy to measure, what we measure is very limited at the moment. And education is a much broader process. So for me, it'd be much more about looking at the progress that children are making across a broad set of um, you know, criteria. So they don't have to all get to the same point. That's madness. It's actually quite unhelpful if we've all learned the same things. When we all get in the office, then we're all saying the same stuff. You know, we've got no cognitive diversity, if that's the case. And that's what we're training. And again, it makes no sense. So progress is, is, the, is the kind of short answer, if you like, to a question. Let's think about how we can always, what progress have they made and how do we deepen that, taking account of where they want to go next. And, and if you carry that through to professional life, I'm, again, interested in the principles of, of having a growth mindset. And I think that this feeds in across all areas of education and work. And the growth mindset is both about continually developing yourself but it's also the acknowledgement that you aren't perfect and there isn't a right way of doing things and you write about that in the book how does that feed into your general thesis absolutely we have in the fixed mindset the sense we're trying to prove how good we are it's ego driven whereas actually what we want to be doing is improving all the time that gives us that constant momentum and coming back to your point about resilience that is where resilience sits at a point where we're constantly growing and developing regardless of what the results might be so we might win we might lose in that narrow sense but actually we will have gained something personally from that experience from working with others from what we learned that we do differently next time that's the real success because that's what we take with us the result is temporary and you move on to something else it's the same within sport you know you win or lose a race but actually as athletes when you're at elite level you're always trying to maximize your improvement because there's always another race and you need to think about what you're going to build on for the next race not get on this roller coaster of highs and lows of success and failure that leads to kind of deep mental stress and we want to be in a place where we're constantly improving and that's what the focus is on how can we feed that next how can we sort of provide an environment in which we keep learning I mean, I often find it quite interesting that within companies, um, there's more learning development available sometimes in, in that sort of um, once you've been in for a few years and that kind of middle place. And then when you get to be a leader, well, then it stops. I'm involved in coaching and, and working with teams and leaders. And, and you know, I'm, I will ask them, how do you learn? Tell me about, describe your, your learning journey. You've got all these incredibly difficult challenges that you have to deal with. So how are you learning and growing in order to bring new ideas to the table, in order to use others as a sounding board? And, and it's just absent. It's just viewed, well, you've got to that leadership position. So now you know everything, which again is madness and very limiting. It doesn't enable them, doesn't empower them. You know, they feel that pressure that I should know everything, which again is unhelpful to finding the best solutions to things. We want to be constantly improving rather than trying to prove who we are. So get away from that kind of, you know, ego is a big part of it. If we define success through that ego that I've beaten you, I'm better than you. You know, we're, we're really limiting how we might together explore our potential. And that's the sort of mindset shift that I want 
through the long win where we have this the three c's you mentioned the clarity constant learning mindset and connection so we prioritize clarifying our purpose the bigger picture of what matters over a slightly longer term we really have that constant learning success is constantly learning so that we are stretching ourselves all the time open to feedback open to new experiences learning and able to adapt to everything that's thrown at us not fixed with our knowledge and where we are and that we prioritize the human connections the relationships in everything that we do and there's a fundamental shift in mindset required through a lot of business leaders i mean the world of work's changing and i think you've mentioned personalization of education which i really like it's a really not neat idea there's also trends in the workplace so the idea that a there's a particular job spec for a role is i think just such a dated idea i like the idea of job crafting uh, and putting your own stamp on a job it's just such a brilliant idea companies have to be brave enough to allow the staff to do that but it just seems so sensible and it seems forward thinking so i totally love it um i mean i've read all the research and dan cable writes about it in his brilliant book alive and um i've seen i've seen some sort of piloting of it and it's interesting there's such a nervousness and yet when you say why what we you know what what can you lose if you like by doing this by people you know by people who are doing the job defining the job they do so you know best the job you do and you define it. what what's to lose here um and it, again it's such a lovely way of giving autonomy and meaning to a job and of course you know the, what we currently do by having these meaningless titles of you know executive and account manager and all of this is you drain people of that meaning and autonomy so you know you're 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 giving something back if you like that we should never have taken away in the first place but it is about having um, different conversations in the workplace is the key here to this mindset shift that we are not if you like trying to operate as machines and I think we are trying to undo you know that that kind of process of dehumanizing the workplace that happened in the 80s where everyone was a cog and a machine and we thought that was a you know we kind of had that industrial mentality and, and we really haven't moved on enough from that where we can actually see people for the richness of who they are. You know, I always think it's, it's again, when people come into a team and, and, and they say, oh, we've recruited, you know, these people on the CVs and the CVs are very, very similar. And I think, well, now I want to know who's the person behind the CV. I don't want to recruit anyone from a CV. I want to know everything that's not on the CV. You know, to know what they care about, what gets them up in the morning, how they work in a team, what are the things that, that they like exploring? What are they curious about? What are the things that bring meaning to their life in the past? and what will in the future all of these questions which are completely absent from the cv um, that's what i want to know about if i'm in a team with somebody those are the questions i want to ask so it is about asking you know bringing different human questions into the workplace into what we do not to make it a nicey nicey place to actually drive performance motivation and a much broader sustainable type of success so you've had a varied career. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self if you could speak to them now? So don't, don't chase short-term metrics. Um, think about what matters. Take a step back. Um, for me, it was actually a sports psychologist that helped me to shift my mindset. So I'm thinking I've got to win and now I'm complete failure if I haven't won. So you know, it would be to get off that gravy train, if you like, or that sort of pointless chasing of short-term metrics think about what matters think about what you value another question i like to ask and it's one of the key reasons i started recording this show was the challenge that we have in necessarily sticking to good advice i think i often 
hand out advice to other people, which I know is sound. And you know, if if I follow it, I know probably my life's better. But it's not necessarily always that easy to stick to it. I'm interested in in two things really. Is, is there anything that that you struggle with? Any of the fundamental ideas that you hold and offer as advice to other people if you struggle to stick to? And do you have any tips about how we should try and overcome that in a world where we get so much information, so much advice, how do we identify the advice which is right for us as an individual and how can you get over those times where it's difficult to stick to it? Yeah, so again, it comes back to autonomy and meaning that actually rather than hand out advice, we probably need to get people to themselves decide what's right for them because that'll be much more sustainable than you or I telling them what we think is right for them. So it's about more of that coaching approach, if you like, so that people determine for themselves something that has meaning. And again, you know, the whole pointlessness of New Year's resolutions on an arbitrary day in January and nobody holds to them. And, you know, we write down things that we think we should be doing or that somebody else has told us we, you know, is the right thing to do rather than actually taking time to reflect and think about what we really want to do and why is that important and why is that meaningful for us so you know again we've got to go deeper we've got to get to that point of meaning when nobody is going to ever change a habit if just because they're told to do it um if i don't think it's right for me if i don't have enough headspace as well to reflect on it and think about why is this going to add value to my life why is this going to help me to achieve the things that are important to me then i'm not going to do it even if i think it's quite a nice idea and i wish i could do it and i think i ought to do it you know i need to determine for myself that this is going to be a key way of helping me do something that for me is is driving me every day to get out of bed that's important to me so it's connecting to things that have meaning and making sure actually we determine that for ourselves and the last one, what advice would you give me of how to start that process? How should I start considering what's really important to me and how to judge what's really successful in my life? Yeah, you come back to the why question, the, the, the easiest sort of shortest answer, um, although it's not easy to do, is just to start thinking, why do I want that next promotion? Why does that matter to me? And, and to ask why again and again and again. So if you say, oh, because it'll never me to pay my mortgage or, you know, why, why do I need that? Why is that important? And then we come around to your family or we might come around to something else, you know, status. And then think, OK, so am I happy that I want to get promoted because it improves my status? Is status what's the most important thing to me? You know, we need to kind of dig and, and unravel the layers of why things matter to us. So why is the most powerful tool for that? Kath, thanks so much again for joining me today. Thank you for the book, Long Win, which I think is really important and I'd recommend to everybody listening. I appreciate your advice and look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks for inviting me on. That was my conversation with Kath Bishop. Now we've barely scratched the surface of some fascinating insights that Kath's written about in her book, so I'd recommend picking up a copy of The Long Win when you can. And of course, let me know what you think about it once you've read it. In the next couple of episodes, I'll be discussing themes related to building a portfolio career and why working less can help you deliver more. Until then, please subscribe if you haven't already, and I'll see you again soon.